It's Wednesday, July 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hello. It's going a little bit better than you, man. What'd you do to your foot? Uh, that would be fellow fool Brandon Reagan sticking a oh. hockey blade underneath my foot and tripping me. And me just putting all of my weight <laughs> yeah. onto a ankle that was bent in the wrong direction. Oh it's still a little swollen. I have a second ankle right now. It's very yeah, purple yeah. and Did blue. You, there was nothing broken. Uh, so far, so actually, here's something interesting. Didn't realize that swelling fluid can make uh, the X-rays blurry, yep. so the doctors couldn't give me a definitive yes or no. So I have to go back in for some more X-rays. Uh, but wait, yeah. there's more. Yeah. <laughs> All righty then. Let's get away from my disgusting foot and into Amazon versus book publishers, the latest round of this very messy battle between Amazon and publisher Hatchet. Uh, just for a bit of background for everybody, Amazon wants a greater share of ebook revenue and lower ebook prices. Hatchet, which gets 60% of its ebook sales from Amazon, doesn't want that. <laughs> uh, and things have just spiraled out of control. Amazon has gone so far as to remove pre-order buttons on upcoming Hatchet books, delaying shipments of Hatchet books, reducing discounts on their books, and now Amazon has sent out a letter proposing that ebook uh, ebook authors receive 100% of ebook revenue. Amazon is saying, "Well, I'm going to give up all of our revenue if you guys give up all of yours." It's for the authors, you know. They're the innocent That's ones right. here. They're concerned with the greater good. Of obviously. course, of course, <laughs> they're trying to win some hearts, some minds, some leverage. First and foremost, man. Amazon is not afraid to play hardball here. That no. just blew me away. Not at all. So I think I think there are probably two very interesting points here. First is a lot of folks will use this as an opportunity to suggest that Amazon just can't make money unless they continuously lean on their suppliers. Hmm. Um, and I kind of take issue with that interpretation. Uh, in that I believe there is the wherewithal, and Costco is certainly a very good example of a company that can offer prices or goods at very low prices and still make excellent profits. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a lot of that owes to Costco's membership model, but I think there's an interesting stat here. Um, if you were to look at Amazon and their profitability or their gross profits per distribution center relative to and this is adjusted for labor and fuel costs because obviously there's there's uh, there are some critical differences between Amazon's model relative to a traditional retailer, mm-hmm. and they make probably about half the gross profits per distribution center that a Walmart does. And you know, and Walmart actually surprisingly sources a lot of their merchandise through distribution centers. So what that's telling you here is, in in fairness, there is there is a good case. For Amazon to be profitable without continuously leaning on its vendors. And then I think, and I'm sure Jason might echo this opinion, it's very interesting how Amazon has become so powerful that they can really and truly disintermediate entire industries. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you compare them to Costco, again, this gets you to asking the question Costco is regarded as a very hard nosed uh, negotiator. And, you know, in spite of that, Amazon is much more widely loathed. Um, you know, I get the idea of leaning on your vendors to get lowest cost for your consumers, and as an Amazon Prime member, I am quite appreciative of that. But it stands to reason that you know, if you piss enough people off for long enough, that's going to be bad news for your business. And I think that you know, taking taking a holistic view of this, Amazon might benefit from taking more of a stakeholder-centric tack. 
in future negotiations. There, there's interesting. There's an interesting sort of game theory dynamic there because you don't want to be too cushy, and yet at the same time you need to let people make money because that sort of fulfills the virtuous cycle there. Right. Yeah, I think uh, you know when you look at. I think historically, when you look at it, the the publisher author relationship hasn't always been that cozy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think authors for the most part of have, have felt that that publishers. Uh, we're probably getting a little bit more than their fair share, uh, but really that was the key to production and distribution, right? Was mm-hmm. the the relationship with a, with a publisher, and uh, you know, the technology and the internet has has changed the game in virtually every walk of life, in in, in you know, publishing uh, books as well. So I mean, you look at look at it today, and I mean, if you want to write a book, you can write a book, you can self publish it, you can distribution, you you can distri- distribute it, and and anybody can get on their Kindle or whatever. Um, it, it certainly simplifies the process, and, and it's understandable why the publishers hate Amazon so much. I mean, they're completely disrupting their their old business model. I mean, right. those 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 days are numbered, and I mean, it's it's not something that we're not going to turn back the hands of time and, and go back to sort of you know the, the old model there. And so, uh, yeah, there's always room for negotiation. I think Amazon. Uh, it's interesting to see them really tightening the screws uh, on on Hatchet. I think that uh, you know they pretty much are showing here that uh, Hatchet probably needs Amazon more than Amazon needs Hatchet. Oh, and yeah. I think that it's 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 interesting to look at from a consu- from like a consumer's perspective and an investor's perspective. Like mm. you know you love consumers love Amazon. I think for the most part they 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 are loyal to Amazon because because Amazon is such a customer centric. Business, it, mm-hmm. it focuses on their customer and customer service. Investors, yeah, we have this dilemma. We we talk about when are they going to be profitable? Will they be profitable? I think Mikey's points there uh, regarding profitability and distribution centers was was excellent insight there. And I think we probably both agree that uh, you know that there is the potential there for Amazon to be extremely profitable uh, once they once they have uh, you know finished sort of investing in the business, so to speak. But uh, yeah. It, it, they're gonna they're gonna come to an agreement at some point here, but I, I like how they were like, look, let's just give one hundred percent of the sales to to the author, right? I mean, in in Hatchet was like, nope, let's not do that. <laughs> just right. a great so, no, I mean, but so so the interesting part about this when you're just the, examining that sort of tension and this this dynamic which exists between vendors and various stakeholders in a given arrangement is, so if you're an author, I mean. Which evil are you more willing to choose? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because you know, I mean, it, it stands to reason, and I, I'm obviously I'm not like an FTC lawyer or something to that effect. I'm I'm sitting here, um, <laughs> but you know, is does this stand to reason that Amazon has become so influential, particularly in the book business, that they verge on monopolist? Because you know, the logical question then becomes: Sorry, they're saying. All right, um, authors will give you a hundred percent of the profits, which otherwise would have gone to publishers. Um, in actuality, you know, the next head on the chopping block is probably authors, um, <laughs> because you know, for the anyone who watched the uh, the David Faber documentary on Amazon or read the Everything Store, you can say with relative certainty that 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 has been sort of Amazon's modus operandi, where they will slowly but surely kind of kill people by a thousand paper cuts um and you know that's that's a scary place to be if you're an author i think um because they control a lot of that market so amazon wins this one not hatchet yeah uh, i mean i don't see i don't see how how i don't see how hatchet comes out of this uh 
Absent government yeah, intervention. Just, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Amazon's pretty much taken their firm stance, and I mean, Jeff Bezos is a fairly relentless, uh, tenacious guy, you know. I mean, to I, say I the least. He has a reputation for that, so I, I imagine they've taken their stance, and that's where they're going to stay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Just interesting. All right, uh, let's move on to some earnings news. Yesterday, the Container Store announced first quarter results. Things didn't look too good there this quarter, with sales and EPS both coming in below analyst estimates. And on top of that, the company revised its annual guidance to $0.07 below previous forecasts. Guys, what's going on with the Container Store? So I, you know, we talked about on Monday companies that we were looking that needed a good quarter, and, and Container Store was the one I called out as, as being one that really, you know, needed to come with some good numbers, and and uh, and they didn't, you know. And I mean, I for me, the question with Container Store always has been the growth prospects. I don't question the quality of the business. I mean, I feel like they do have that that side of of the coin there figured out. Um, you know, there was some interesting stuff on this call. Like we we are looking at these these earnings coming out and thinking, okay, well they can't really blame the weather this quarter. So let's focus on on what the results are telling us. And and uh, you know, Kip Tindall was was I in in the call. I, I think he just a little bit of a mis, misstep there on his part mm-hmm. because I mean he maybe a misfire a misfire. It's just yeah. he's you know saying that last quarter it was the weather and now this quarter it's really just this general retail malaise that's out there. And, and I I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, I'm, I'm certain that we will find out here as as we get further into earnings season. I think the worst thing that could happen for the container stores for a couple of their direct competitors uh, to to fire out some pretty good numbers because mm. if they do, well, that's going to be very telling uh, that it, that it was more than just uh, you know an, an economic malaise that is uh, you know holding the container store back. But you know you see where they where they refrained from discounting. They said you know and and so they suffered obviously on the comp side. But I, I appreciate the fact that they did that. But by the same token, I think that also begs the question of what kind of pricing power does this company, you know, ultimately have? And I don't know that they really do. I mean, they have a market opportunity, no question there, and it's and it's a well-run company. But but again, I question the growth prospects because for me, when I look at some of their direct competitors, I mean, IKEA is one that comes to mind, and we don't know as much about IKEA uh, as we would if it was a publicly traded company. But but. You know, I mean, they offer very similar solutions at, at much lower prices. Um, you know, and when we, you know, did we needed a container solution for our laundry room, and and, and we got that from IKEA. You know, mm, and so, right. uh, yeah, I, I this is going to probably go lower before it goes higher. I think bigger picture, you know, the container store is going to be fine. I think they, they it's a well run business, but but it's it's not a stock that uh, I, I would I would be looking to to buy on this dip. Right. So I I think they're. A couple interesting data points in reference to this. Um, like Jason was saying, with respect to the durability of the growth story, the sort of retail malaise and funk story that people have been painting. Um, if you wanted to look at two companies that are relative comparables, and maybe not direct, um, just because obviously the container store's consumable is a much more discretionary item, but Home Depot and Lowe's have been killing mm-hmm. it recently. And, you know, the container store, which is reportedly a high growth story, they can't eke out a comparable store gain. And I think this just speaks more broadly speaking to the dynamic of the market. They are a high growth or high growth quotations retailer in a very competitive space. And so you, you just have to wonder whether or not the reality of their prospects are as good as they've been purported. Um, like Jason said, you know, this is not a recurring purchase item. It's high priced. And I think you can argue that in some sense, uh, you know, the the scope of their offering 
is maybe not as large as anyone has thought. There are some people that like this idea of a premium product to be able to touch it, to go into this big, nice store. But for a lot of folks, there there is the possibility for disintermediation. Um, Another interesting stat here when you're just talking about the idea of this growth story, them growing into it, the relative profitability. Um, best, or I'm sorry, Bed Bath & Beyond, they do uh, $269 worth of squ- sales per square foot. Mm-hmm. Container Store does $662. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a very strong figure by retail standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and Best, or, I'm sorry, why do I want to call them Best Buy? Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond does 14% operating margins, and the container store logged 4% last year. Now, some of this is going to be them growing into you know, their, their shoes as a retailer. But yet again, you have to ask the question, if that market opportunity isn't there, if they can't move more goods, and you also aren't necessarily looking at a recurring purchase item, maybe they don't have pr- pricing power, or the market is not as big as they think, you have to be wondering when you're looking at, I think they got it for $0.50 cents in EPS, whether or not that 40 multiple is really as good as it looks. Hmm. All right. In better earnings news, Alcoa uh, had a, a great little day yesterday. Uh, excuse me. Reported second quarter results. Um, adjusted quarterly profit was $0.18 cents a share. That's a 50% beat of expectations. Uh, where is Alcoa getting the strength from, guys? So this is uh, this is an interesting story here because for a long time I think Alcoa has been been regarded as this sort of just undermanaged, not particularly exciting <laughs> company where they they sell aluminum um, and <laughs> most of what they sell is you know they they are an integrated operation so they mine it they sell a refined good and you know. I mean, basically, they're involved in every element of the production chain. Um, And for a very, very long time, they have relatively low-cost mining operations, but their production operations are sort of mid-tier. And they also sold sold commodity goods. And so that wasn't a good place for them to be. And the story recently has been there's been sort of an interesting uh, transformation where they're moving to be sort of a, a more global provider of highly engineered products. You're talking about aircraft parts, you're talking about parts for automobiles. And you know because these these parts are sort of mission critical and also they're highly engineered, uh, buyers of these products will typically go ahead and lock in with a given producer. Um, so, so for Alcoa, this has been a very interesting story. Um, that being said, you know a, a significant percentage of their profits still do derive from more commodity type products, hmm. where they're exposed to the vagaries of the market. They don't necessarily have pricing power. Aluminum supply is not particularly tightly held. Um, so, you know, if they can keep up this transformation, um, that's that is prospectively very, very interesting. Whether or not that's going to be a, be able to become a meaningful enough part of their business mm-hmm. so that this warrants you know, an investment given a long-term view, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion. I, did, I do think it is one to watch, and it's sort of an interesting bit to have on your radar. Uh, now, most people regard Alcoa as the beginning of un- the unofficial beginning of earnings season. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, before we go, discuss a, a bit of earnings, shall we? Uh, what's on your guys' respective radars? Uh, give the people something to watch for. Maybe, since we were talking container store earlier, maybe if there was a company out there that had a sort of a rough earnings report, would you still be okay with buying into it? Would you buy on that dip? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I think I, you know, I always uh, have been a just a huge fan of Boston Beer Company. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I enjoy the product. 
and um, you have the, to love what they did for yeah, beer. Exactly. Um, I mean, I it's, mean <laughs> it's the company that basically redefined the entire craft brew industry. And so right. when you look at the larger market dynamics of beer in general, uh, growth in the overall market, pardon the pun, has been relatively flat. Uh, uh, however, when you look at what craft brew has been doing as, as a subsection of that market, craft beer has just been frothy. growing at a phenomenal pace. Yeah. It's frothy, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, you're, you're looking at anywhere from from 12 to 15 percent annualized sales growth over the over the coming five years. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about about the craft brew segment. And Boston beer is one that just continues to define it. And that, you know, that added dynamic of uh, cider now picking up a little bit more share. Which, in, in I that don't market, understand which, that one, but that's another. Yeah, story I mean, it's together. you don't like cider. It's delicious. It's just Healthy. kind of like I just want to sort of just pull my cheeks into my mouth type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't I don't, I don't feel quite um, as strongly about it as Mikey does, <laughs> but I will say like it's interesting because I think it, it really lends a lot a lot of credence to that Angry Orchard uh, mm. purchase that they made a number of years ago. Angry because, mouth. Uh, um, angry <laughs> Angry Orchard is, is a is you know one of the, one of the names that, that everybody knows in, in that cider space. And so I think they'll continue to benefit from that. I think the alchemy and science uh, division of the business that helps bring more craft brews under their umbrella, I think, is going to be a driver of just some in- incremental sales as time goes on. And you got to love the leadership story there. Uh, Jim Cook's still a big part of the business and uh, still owns a slug of, slug of the share. So that's one where... If I saw, yeah, if I saw that thing tank on an earnings report, I I would be very quick to to look at pulling the trigger to add to to buy some shares. I don't own any shares today, but I would be I'd be uh, looking at that one. All right, and uh, Mike, is there anything out there that doesn't make your mouth pucker? Uh, <laughs> well, this this will be somewhat funny, and in, in contrast, so I'm looking at a company I recently wrote about these guys uh, called Oak Tree Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, they are about an eighty billion dollar alternative asset manager. They're sort of flagship, um, and I guess their roots are in distressed debt. They were co-founded by Wonderkin investor Howard Marks. Um, and these guys, uh, the a good part of their revenues, the, these are funds that are sort of hedge fund-like in structure, where they basically make a 1% management fee, and they subject to attaining a given profit uh, profitability threshold within the funds, they take 20% of profits. Hmm. Usually, these are discrete life funds where they exist for maybe anywhere between five and 10 years. Capital's locked up. Oak Tree, uh, during the credit crisis, on account of their reputation and their sort of uh, their their flair for things ugly, they made an absolute killing. Hmm. Um, and you know the way this works is their profit model is sort of they they raise money when things are bad, and then you know markets get better. They harvest profits, and because they take that 20% portion, they'll make outsized profits during this period or during a period such as this. They have. Um, the trouble now is that the market's asking whether or not the best is done. And I think that sort of fundamentally misunderstands their profit model, where there's going to be a sort of near term cyclicality and lumpiness to their profitability. But in the long term, there's a certain sort of profit, or not profitability, but predictability as well, um, just because. That's the way this model works. And if you have faith in the investment credo and their philosophy, that's going to work. Um, these guys, they've already raised a lot of funds to sort of compensate for their since liquidated credit crisis, vintage funds. Um, they have a huge opportunity in the banking sector just because it is fundamentally changing. The Eurozone banks, they don't have the capacity to loan as they did just because there are higher capital requirements. Same would go for the US. Um, 
And that creates a great opportunity for houses that have the capacities, expertise, and knowledge. Um, so, you know, right now the stock has traded down pretty significantly. It's I think it's one of the few in the market <laughs> that is trading at a 52-week low. It's trading at about 12 times what I think is their sort of recurring cash generating potential. This is on a long-term normalized basis because, of course, near-term will be cyclical. So, uh, I, I think that's an interesting opportunity right now. And to the extent, you know. It continued to get beat up because they said, look, we're just not seeing a lot of values in the market right now. I would think that's an interesting opportunity to add to a stock like this. Hmm. All right. Jason Moser, Michael Olson, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Heather Horton. I'm Mark Reef. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.